Today's reading is Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern him with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison... The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, as we study this man's life, we pray that you will encourage us and teach us for your name's sake. Amen. (coughs) Well over a third of the first book of the Bible is concerned with the story of Joseph, so he must be very significant. The outlines of the story are well known. 
He was a favorite son of Jacob. Um, he was betrayed by his brothers and sold as a slave down into Egypt. Uh, three times he rises um, to power unexpectedly, first in Potiphar's household and then in the administration of the prison uh, to which he'd been unjustly consigned and uh, finally in the household um, of Pharaoh where he was second only to the nation's ruler. He was the hero who rescued um, Egypt from a terrible famine he was eventually reconciled with his brothers and brought them and his old father Jacob to come and live in Egypt where they became a great nation and in due course, and you'll be hearing about that next week, um, they left Egypt in the Exodus. Now all of that is reasonably well known uh, to church people. It is one of the world's greatest stories but it's more than that. It's an anticipation, in many ways, of the life of Jesus. But we have no time to go into that this morning. Um, it's also the, it, it's, it's packed with practical help for our own lives. And that's what I want to look at with you today. And as, because there's so much material, I've tried to break it down into three households. Joseph in his parents' house, Joseph in Potiphar's house, and Joseph in Pharaoh's house. The key word for Joseph in his parents' house was favoritism. It was a wealthy agricultural home with massive flocks and herds, 12 children, uh, all seemed to be going well. But look a little bit deeper. And um, in a previous chapter, we're told that, J that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. And that's a very, very ugly thing to find in a family, favoritism. But it's very easy to do. It's disastrous, though, because that same chapter tells us that it led to envy, of course, um, and then to hatred. His brothers hate, hated him so much, we're told, that they couldn't even speak a civil word to him. If there is favoritism in a family, the children who are not the favorites spot it at once, and of course they resent it bitterly. In this case, they hated him so much that they plotted to kill him when they had an opportunity. Um, and they, they recalled later how he pleaded for his life, but they would not listen. They had uh, several changes of plan when he came to visit them on behalf of his father when they were somewhere away from home. Uh, they decided to throw him into a cistern that was empty to let him rot there. And then uh, they decided, no, we won't do that, we'll, we'll sell him this 17-year-old brother of theirs, will sell him to these traders that are passing by going down into Egypt. Sell him off as a slave. And to cap it all, they turned to deceit. They stripped him of his very special robe. They dipped it in animal blood, and they told their father that they'd found it, and presumably a wild animal had killed Joseph. Now, not all favoritism in families um, is as disastrous uh, in its consequences as that. 
But all favoritism is disastrous. What's more, it's misplaced. If we idolize some member of a family, we can become blind to their faults. And Joseph sure had some faults, as a matter of fact, their characteristic faults of favorites. He was a talebearer, we are told. I quote, he bought his father a bad report about his brothers. That's the fastest way to get into trouble. And he was a show-off. He had a God-given gift in the area of dreams, to dream them himself and to interpret them in other people. But he infuriated his family by showing off that gift. He, he does get, to be sure, a, a mild rebuke, uh, but no more, from Jacob for doing this. But Jacob had failed to raise a godly family. He'd had a profound personal encounter with God. We might call it a conversion. I will not let you go until you bless me. But he failed to carry that through into his family life. Alas, so many Christian families where the parents are Christians, but the children are spiritually nowhere. And we who are parents here today, we have no greater responsibility in life than to devote ourselves to bringing our children up to know and love the Lord. And one of the great ways to do that is to avoid favoritism like the plague. Jacob, Jacob's house spelt favoritism. Joseph in Potiphar's house. And the key word there is temptation and sexual temptation at that. A member of the church said to me recently that um, here in St. Andrews we never preach about sex or money. Well, sex stares us in the face in Genesis 39 that we've just had read to us very clearly. Joseph had been brought into, in the slave market uh, by Potiphar, who was an Egyptian grandee. Um, <clears throat> he lived in a big house, and he had lots of slaves. Very tough for Joseph, because he came from an agricultural background, and um, now he finds himself living in a palace full of slaves, speaking a language that he couldn't understand. Very, very difficult shift in circumstances. But three times in chapter 39, we are told the Lord was with him. Now, what a comfort that is to any of us when we are plunged in a new and perhaps unwelcome situation. For every Christian, you can say, the Lord is with me in that situation. As we've been singing about it today, he's with me everywhere. Uh, another encouragement that came from this uh, unlooked-for situation was that the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Pray that that may happen in your office or in your company or in your school. 
because God is with you. Because actually Potiphar saw that God was with him. That's interesting, isn't it? His master saw that the Lord was with him. It was manifest in his lifestyle that there was something different about Joseph. And people reckoned it was due to God, and they were right. So Potiphar trusted Joseph and put him in charge of the household. But when we get to verse 7 of the chapter we've just had read, you begin to see the warning signs. Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph. Come to bed with me, she said. Now there's several things about this sexual temptation which are quite significant here, I think. The first is that sex is probably the strongest instinct that we have apart from the instinct to stay alive. So expect temptation to come from that source. And it comes to everyone. Secondly, notice that the temptation arose in the workplace. Joseph's workplace was looking after the, the, the whole household of, of Potiphar. And temptation frequently comes to us in the workplace. It is there that our moral integrity is tested. Would he compromise or would he not? Our ethics are very vulnerable in the workplace and they're probably only worth as much as they are in the workplace. Third thing I see here is that temptation is particularly strong and our morality most, is most severely tested where there is no one to see. When we are on our own, there was no one in the house, we're told. But God sees me always. And the fourth thing about this temptation is that it was repeated. She tried again and again and again to get Joseph to go to bed with her. And repeated temptation is the biggest challenge. Samson succumbed under repeated temptation from Delilah. Very similar circumstances. But Joseph did not succumb. Why not? How did he overcome this very powerful test? Well, I think the first thing is this. He had an absolute standard of right and wrong. We need to cling on to this in a relativist world such as we live in. He says, how can I do this wicked thing? It's not just a cheery one-night stand. It is a wicked thing. An absolute standard. Secondly, he realized <coughs> that it was not, would not just be a sin against Potiphar, but it would be a sin against a holy God. How can I do this sin, this wicked thing, before God? How right Dostoevsky was to say, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. There is a direct link between today's rejection of God in the West and today's sexual promiscuity. You saw it bursting on the scene in the 60s. It's now well settled in the 21st century. An absolute standard, a recognition that it would be a sin against God, 
And the other thing that I think is so intriguing is he fled. <coughs> For the second time in his life, he left his coat behind. He fled, and she grabbed his coat, um, and he ran away. Other temptations may be battled with, and probably should be. But the best thing we can do with sexual temptation, whether it's in pictures, whether it's on the web, whether it's through people, whatever it comes, is to flee. Flee youthful lusts which war against the soul, said the Apostle Paul. Or when Abraham left Sodom, flee for your life, do not look behind you, or stay in the plain. And he fled. And in so doing, he won. But at that time, Joseph must have felt very down. She held his cloak. She told lies about his behavior. He was thrown into prison. Pretty steep price for maintaining your integrity. And yet, you know, God is no man's debtor. We read, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in the prison in all he did. And he rose to leadership in the prison. And in due course, as we know, through those dreams for the baker and the cupbearer, he was introduced to Pharaoh. And so that leads us to the third house, Jacob's house, favoritism. <coughs> Potiphar's house, temptation. Pharaoh's house, and the key word here is leadership. It is sharply divided between the lead that he gave in public life and the leadership that he showed in private with his brothers. And we'll look at both of those. On the job front, there are some wonderful qualities in this man and we could learn from them. And if, we, if we're in any position of leadership, and many in this building today are in positions of leadership, here's the first notable thing, godly humility. When he proves able to explain Pharaoh's dream, he insists that this gift of interpretation is not his own ability. His talent comes from God, and he wants Pharaoh to be in no doubt whatsoever about it. I cannot interpret it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And twice more, he says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. I love that humility. It's one of the great winsome things about effective leadership. You see it in a man like Nelson Mandela. But you see it anywhere where you've got a really substantial leader. There are often people who are small in their own estimation. Godly humility. Here's the second thing that I see in him, and that was brilliant planning. And that is crucial for leadership. It's no good if we bumble along. In chapter 41, you've got this story of Pharaoh uh, and his dreams being interpreted. And Pharaoh is simply wowed by this. And Joseph says, here's the practical, um, brilliant planning of the man. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man, discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth part of the produce of the land of Egypt 
during the seven plenteous years and let them gather all the food of those good years um, and let them store it away uh, under the authority of Pharaoh for food in their cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine so that the land may not perish through the famine. Brilliant planning. Humility, planning. And then you've got executive efficiency in the man. That is necessary in leadership. You've got to be able to do the stuff. Verse 46 is significant. Joseph was 30 years old. That's a... Uh, chapter 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went through all the land of Egypt, and he oversaw the setting aside of all this money. He did it himself, hands-on executive efficiency. And I think the, 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 the final thing that strikes me about this man's leadership in the public scene was his remarkable and imaginative loyalty to Pharaoh. <clears throat> There's nothing wooden about his loyalty, just sort of saluting and saying, three bags full, sir. Not a bit of it. Chapter 47 uh, shows a fascinating thing, that um, when the people had uh, used up all their money uh, to buy grain, they um, traded their livestock to Joseph, who passed it on to Pharaoh. And then they traded their land to Joseph, who did the same thing. And then they traded themselves to Joseph. And Joseph wouldn't take that, he passed it on to Pharaoh. And as a result, the whole nation was indebted to Pharaoh. And from then onwards, they gave him a fifth of their produce. Now, you might feel that that was rather sharp practice on Joseph's um, part. They didn't feel that. You have saved their lives, they said. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. <coughs> Not bad qualities in public leadership. Loyalty, planning, efficiency, and modesty. May we covet them if we're in any position of leadership. But the leadership he displayed in his private dealings with his family is perhaps even more significant, and it makes up um, most of the final chapters of Genesis. It has one single clear aim, and that is to bring his guilty brothers back to repentance. Sin and repentance is a big theme in the whole Bible, and it's here in the first book. There were some very interesting steps in how these guilty brothers came to confession, and the 42nd chapter outlines those steps. The first one is the pressure of want. There was famine in the land of Canaan. They had nothing to eat. They were getting desperate. And what was happening behind these empty tummies was that God was breaking up their nest. God was loosening their roots. Changed circumstances often start the journey to repent 
of some unconfessed sin. When we're thrown into a different situation, when a bereavement comes, when some particular need strikes us, the pressure of need is often the start. And then a taste of our own medicine is often the next thing. These people had been perfect swine to Joseph. And now they come creeping to this man. They didn't realize that it was Joseph. They came to this high official in Egypt. And Joseph recognizes them, but they did not recognize him. And what does he do? Gently but firmly, he gives them a taste of their own medicine. He speaks roughly to them, as they had spoken roughly to him long ago. He throws them into prison <laughs> as spies, but only for three days, just as though they had thrown him into a pit long ago. A taste of our own medicine sometimes brings us nearer to repentance. And then a recognition of guilt. As they lay in prison, they had leisure for three days to reflect. They didn't know how long they were going to stay there. But they had plenty of leisure to reflect. No television, no books, thinking. And at that time, God's Spirit brought them to see, I quote, we are being punished because of our brother. We saw he was distressed. How distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why we're here. When we take time to reflect on our guilt, that brings us nearer to repentance. And then the thing that tipped the scales was unexpected generosity. Remember how the brothers had gone down from Egypt, uh, had gone up from Egypt uh, to, <coughs> to the land of Canaan with their sacks of corn, and they found that the money that they paid for it had been restored into their sacks' mouth. And they were highly embarrassed. They didn't know how they'd be treated as spies, as slaves, as crooks uh, when they went back. And they had to go back again because otherwise they'd all have died. So they go back, and their hearts are in their mouths in fear of reprisals for the money that was returned to their sacks. But what did they find? That they were royally and lovingly entertained by Joseph at his own table. Often the love and generous attitude of somebody whom we have wronged gets through to our hearts when we've hardened our hearts and it softens us and brings us to a change of mind. And so they made a full confession. Judah, as their spokesman, throws himself on Joseph's mercy. And in response, Joseph throws himself on their necks and weeps his heart out in forgiveness and love. And notice this, that only after that do we read his brothers talked with him. Chapter 45, verse 15. His brothers talked with him. There is no possibility of companionship, either with other people at any depth or with God, until we repent and then communication can happen. And maybe that is Joseph's final word to us today. 
You may remember some pretty dark secret in your life long ago that has never been confessed and so never been forgiven. Let this story encourage us, if we're in that state, to get it cleaned up. You'll be surprised at the relief you feel and maybe the welcome that you receive from the person that you've wronged. Amazing that Joseph does not blame them. He says, do not be angry at yourselves for selling me here. For it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you by a great deliverance. It was not you, but God. He saw God's hand even in the disastrous situation that had um, thrown him uh, in, into slavery. And God welcomes the penitent Silla just as warmly as Joseph welcomed those brothers of his. But God wants us to learn from this story that there is no forgiveness. There is no possibility of real communion with him without heartfelt repentance. And when we learn to do that, we find at Calvary a great deliverance, even more wonderful than the, the deliverance that Joseph was able to display in Egypt. Let's have a prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that these things that were written long ago were written for our learning, that we, through the comfort of the scriptures, may have hope. And we thank you for the hope that this story of Joseph gives us in many sides of our lives. We pray for our family life. We pray for our own meeting of temptation. We pray for the areas where we are called to lead. That Joseph may have something important for us to take on board. So send us out today grateful for this great godly man whom you have left for an example for us. Amen.